0: Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial.
1: I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is our second episode in our quest to review the saga of Hail Scott the Grimson. Ooh, you sound like you're all fired up. I am. I, I don't know whether it's because this saga is just that good or whether maybe it's the beer talking, but I'm excited <laughs> to get back into this story. Uh, didn't you just open that beer up before we started recording? I did, but uh, yeah. you don't know what I was doing before that, John. Oxford, Mississippi is a in place. Yeah, given your uh, work and family obligations, I doubt you've been out partying on a weeknight. Well, then, it looks like Ale Saga is just that good.
0: Uh Uh-huh, unless you've got a secret life as a frat boy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) As we said last time, uh, we're still reading the part of the saga that most people forget about. It's the preface
1: section that some people call Thoralf Saga. Oh, come on, how could anyone forget this part? It's cohesive, it's engaging, tragic, and uh, a bunch of other adjectives that you can choose for yourselves. It's a lot of stuff. Tight. Okay, yeah.
0: Tight. Interesting choice. It's tight. No, no, no. That's the adjective scholars most often use when describing this section, Mm. Uh, this part on the career of Thorolf Veldolfsson. It's
1: tightly structured. Carefully plotted, I think, is what they're getting at. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah, we didn't see much of Thorolf last time, though, but we're going to see more this time. Yeah, he was out raiding
0: for most of our first episode, and mm-hmm. uh, since I can already see you champing at the bit to talk about Thorolf's career, we should do our quick recap of the previous episode before we get any further. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just,
1: tell me that we don't have to do that. Yes, newsreel effects,
0: yes. Does that means time to, time to weave a tapestry of words with the loom of your imagination. Uh, all right. Last time on... Saga. After a long partnership as Vikings, Kari of Berl and Kvelulf Bjarnason retired to their farms. Kvelulf popped the question to Kari's daughter Solbjorn, and they raised a pair of young rascals together. The handsome and outgoing Thorolf and his ugly but strong brother Grim. Grim's an unpopular introvert, but Thorolf's considered the bee's
1: knees by all who meet him. Meanwhile, Norway's all in a bother over the rise of an ambitious young king named Harold Fairhair. Technically, he's Harold Tanglehair at this point. Leave me alone. Let me do this. <laughs> you know how much I hate this. Harold's <laughs> <laughs> rise includes slicing and dicing Kveldolf's king in Fjordan, a battle. Kveldolf decided to skip out on. As other Norwegians begin to skedaddle from Harold's reach, Thorolf takes up raiding with his uncles Olver Hump and Avon Lamb. But Kveldolf and Grimm sit tight on their farm. Eventually, Harold's lackey comes a-knocking at Kveldolf's door looking for support for the new king now Kveldolf
0: calls the whole thing a load of horse apples and refuses to act either for or against Harald but in this new age of Norway playing Switzerland is not an option (laughs) Harald sends Olver Hump who's given up raiding in exchange for moping about his love life and working as Harald's poet Olver brings word that it's put up or shut up time for Kveldolf but instead clever Kveldolf concocts a cunning canard
1: nice alliteration he, uh, he what?
0: He lies. <laughs>
1: yes. Kurldorf <laughs> sells Olvira a ripe one about sending young Thorof along when he returns from raiding. But it turns out that Thorolf actually does want to go serve Harold. Oh, dear. Setting himself up for a career as one of Harold's personal champions. Thorof puts on his glad rags and leaves <laughs> to meet his new friend with a warning from his father ringing in his ears that Harold will bring great harm to the family. So, there was quite a lot in that episode. It didn't, you know, we only covered like 10 pages, but yeah. 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 That was a, a rich story right from the beginning. And our author is setting up a lot that's going to pay off later. You know, that's one thing I'm not actually sure this author gets enough credit for.
0: I mean, The intricacies of the narrative. I think people spend so much time focusing on the characters that uh, the actual, the, the the way the different strands and motifs of the plot are picked up and featured at various points in the saga. Mm-hmm. I don't think that gets enough credit. Some of the things we're spending time on early in this saga may
1: seem like tangents. But as you say, they're going to be resurfacing later on. Yeah. But some of the things are just tangents, and we can't help (laughs) ourselves. We're going to cover them anyway. Oh, absolutely.
0: Speaking of which, uh, what exactly is in the section we're covering today? Let's have it all. Plot and
1: tangents alike. Oh, I don't think we're covering any tangents, though it might feel like it. This time we're (laughs) going to be covering the first half of the career of Ael's uncle, Thorolf, the good-looking golden boy of the clan. And we'll Mm -hmm. see the Battle of Harvestfjord from a perspective that we haven't seen before. From inside the ship of Harold Fairhair himself this is good stuff wait a minute what that's not how we do episode previews around here hit the button oh seriously see we just did the other thing and you realize <laughs> every time you say hit the button it just means more editing work for me right that that's at least 85% of why i insist on having uh, a button but i just have a quick hit the button In this episode, we follow Thorolf Kveldolfsson as he climbs the ranks in King Harald's fledgling court. With his new friend Bard Brynjolfsson at his side, Thorolf makes a name for himself as Harald's best and brightest. When King Harald clashes with his enemies at Harvestfjord, Bard and Thorolf stand together at the prow of Harald's ship alongside Olvir Hump and Avon Lamb. Sadly, his trusted companion Bard was not so lucky. With a fatal wound sapping his life, Bard bequeaths his land, property, and the care of his wife and son to Thoroth. Unfortunately for Thoroth, there are other men with an eye on Bard's goods and property at Torgar in Palovar. Lurking in the shadows are Herik and Hreirik, the sons of the ill-fated Hilderid, a woman forced into marriage by Bard's grandfather, Bjorgulf. With a questionable claim on Bjorghof's lands, they had been passed over upon his death by Bard's father, Brunjolf. And when the dying Bard hands those lands over to Thoroth, an outsider. The Hildreredersons are willing to do whatever it takes to get it back. Their first step: infiltrate the King's court and gain Harald's confidence. Will Thorolf take advantage of his newfound wealth and political clout in the north to defend his honor? Will the Hildreredersons worm their way into King Harald's ear with their lying tongues? And what is Thorolf doing up there in Finnmark? Find out as Saga Thing takes on Ale Saga, Chapters 7 to 15. So that's a lot. (laughs) It is. And as you can see, a lot of this section is really about establishing Thorolf's character and, uh, and some world building. You can really see that world building in action during Thorolf's excursions into the north. It's one of those
0: moments when the date of composition for this saga becomes really important. This is an early 13th century saga, right? and other texts being written about this time are clearly shaping our author's
1: ideas about the people and cultures of Finnmark and northern Scandinavia. Mm, Finnmark, yeah. Yeah, those encounters in northern Scandinavia are fascinating, and, and they're worth spending some time on at some point. This is actually one of the few sagas to offer a peek into the world of the Sami, or the northern Finnish people. Yep. We'll, we'll have a few recommendations available for reading up on this uh, if you want to, because we probably only have time for a short discussion in this episode. But <laughs> it's a fascinating glimpse into the depiction of an ethnically and linguistically distinct group that's usually regulated to the edges and sidelines of the saga narratives. Well, it's not just travel brochures and quaint
0: ethnic folkways. Uh, we're also going to be seeing the growing strain on the friendship between Thorolf and Harold Fairhair, which is going to be... So one remember, of the tangle
1: Tanglehair. He hasn't finished his uh, quest to control Norway just yet, so... Okay, true, but we'll be covering the moment when
0: he does. True. Or at least the moment when the legendary stories of Harald identify his conquest as a
1: success. All right. Uh, But we do have a bit of an interlude before we get there. Oh, yes, there's a lot to cover. Let's get started.
0: Part 4, The Ballad of Bard Brindleson. We left off with Thorolf and his uncle, Avend, on their journey to join Harold Fairhair's court. But uh, this part of the saga is going to do that cheap film trick where you get to the point where the hero's about to meet a new person. And suddenly there's a freeze frame, the voiceover kicks in, and you know it's backstory time.
1: Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I'd rather uh, we think of this as going back in saga time to... uh, (laughs) Do we still have that uh, the, the, the DeLorean Viking longship time machine <laughs> that we invented so many years ago?
0: Oh, yes. I got it parked out back. Uh, although oh, I'm going to have
1: to insist that we call it the Denorian. The, the Denorian. Yes, you would. <laughs> All right. So, uh, how far back are we going over the whale roads? Oh, about 25 years or so. Uh, we have to cover a whole new origin story. See, so this section of the saga begins with the introduction of a very important family and, more importantly, their property so mercenary of you so thus
0: the <laughs> ballad of Bard brinnddelson uh-huh uh, now as you'll see or here in this
1: case Bard's life will prove to be a critical influence on the future of Thorrrell fielddelson so while this brief interlude and the origin story may feel like a tangent you're gonna want to pay careful attention because it triggers some very important shifts in the lives of our protagonists and technically it's three origin stories three
0: two one how many? Uh, well, we've got Bards, but also uh, his two cousin
1: uncles, the Hilda Riddersons. Uh-huh. Well, that's two as far as I'm concerned. And what is this <laughs> cousin uncles? Cousin uncles? What's that? Yeah, I, I looked it up and there isn't a technical term for it. Uh, like an uncle who's the same age as you. I mean, they're not cousins. <laughs> and I doubt I doubt there's a name for that, but I, I, mean, I guess it happens. Maybe there is a name for it. Uh, a- anyone out there with an uncle or aunt the same age as you, maybe younger? What do you call those people? Yeah, this is what social media is for, John. You right. just this ask is, stupid <laughs> questions and hope someone to learn this kind you. of thing. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately,
0: while you were making that public service announcement, we went back way too far in the Denorian. Wait, what? Where are we? Uh, so now the saga is going to tell us all about Bard's father, Brynjolf,
1: uh-huh. and his grandfather, Bjorgolf of Hologoland. We went back too many generations. I don't think you understand how this conceit works, John. I don't think you understand the kind of power you're playing with here.
0: This is a time-travel Viking ship. It's not a joke, Marty! Sure
1: thing, Doc! <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't a very good Marty, but... It you know, was a very a good gig- Doc. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh, this section of the saga really does go this far back. Uh, most of the information it gives us is somewhat extraneous, although... We do learn that Björgolf is already an old man and a widower when we meet him. Mm-hmm. And his son Brynjolf, uh, he runs the family farm, and he's the right. guy we want to pay attention to at the beginning here.
0: Right, and what we're really here to witness is a pair of weddings. Yes.
1: Uh, the first is the wedding
0: of the son Brynjolf, who marries Helga, the daughter of Kerelhang of Hrafnista. But the second is the marriage of old man Björgolf to Hildurid Hognadotter, a woman
1: about a third his age. Okay, so that was a lot all at once. Uh, Which of these do you want to deal with first? Uh, I'll take Brynjolf and Helga. Of course you will. (laughs) Yes. Now leave the creepy one for me, why don't you? Thanks. I don't mind if I do. Uh,
0: So Brynjolf is married to Helga, as we said, the daughter of Kettlehang. Kettlehang. Yeah, it means trout or possibly salmon. Uh, Helga's family provides an important connection back to our main story, which we'll explain in a little while. Uh, Helga and Brynjolf are well-matched and successful, and in the fullness of time have a single child, a boy named Bard Brynjolfsson. Oh, how sweet. Mm-hmm. Bard is a handsome man, skilled with his hands, and accomplished in all things. In other words,
1: he's uh, he's a Thorolf Kveldelsson type, is what you're saying. Uh, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But while Bard's growing up, mm-hmm. there's a bit of a kink in the family line, you see. Seeing his son's marital bliss makes old man Bjorgulf nostalgic for his own married days. Mm-hmm. And one day he attends a party in the autumn where he gets to know a young lady named Hildred, the young daughter of a wealthy farmer named Hockney of Leica. A week or so after the party, Bjorgolf takes 30 men on a special trip and they sail to Leika. Mm-hmm. And when he arrives, he leaves 10 men in charge of the ship. <laughs> and takes 20 with him to uh, Hogney's farm. I wonder what yeah. he could be up to.
0: Yeah, it's never a sign of good intentions when you have to bring along 10 men to guard the
1: getaway ship. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Yeah, that's probably a bit of a giveaway that something's up. Mm-hmm. So Hogney is politely welcoming of uh, Bjorgolf, but Bjorgolf doesn't waste much time. He approaches Hogney and says, The reason I have come here is to take your daughter <laughs> home with me.
2: <laughs>
0: uh, oh, oh, oh. You what now? And
1: I will... I will celebrate our wedding here
0: and now. I didn't think the situation could be made any creepier, and then you did that voice. Uh, Well, I
1: tried to. I mean, that's his character. (laughs) So, Bjargolf basically forces Hogni to accept this arrangement. Yeah, but it's not all bad. You should be sure Hilderid is, uh, gotta, he's, she's got to marry this brutish old man, but mm-hmm. he does offer an ounce of gold as a token of his appreciation. Oh, how kind. An ounce of gold. As if sure. this wasn't awkward enough, John, he then stays uh-huh. with Hogni for a while and shares a bed with Hilderid in the house. Oh, yeah. I, poor Hogni. I mean, the things you must have heard. <laughs> oh, Poor Hogni. Poor Hilderid. How do you think she feels about all this? It's well, terrible. the
0: plight of women in the sagas is really terrible sometimes. And this is one of those occasions. Yeah. We, and as we've seen before, we just don't get anything from her point of view. And so we don't know how she feels about this. No. Uh, but uh, let, me, let me ask
1: you, uh, is this a legitimate marriage? Or is, are we going to be able to call this one an abduction? So that's a very good question, John. And I, I don't think you're the first to ask it. It's an important issue going forward, as we'll see. Uh, but for now, I'll just say that this is a marriage without any form of legitimate consent. Right, and sure. you can put aside the issue of bridal consent in this case. Hogni, the father, the one who matters in this particular case, is forced to give his daughter to Bjorgolf. Right. We should be very clear that we're talking about... The what is
0: said to matter in the saga <laughs> of course yes. andy and i are not saying that hildurid's
1: opinion does not matter here yes we're talking about the the, the yes. realm of the saga yes. right
2: i'll uh, we'll
1: occasionally remind people of that <laughs> <laughs> but the, the point i'm trying to make is that you know the father's consent is something that matters very very much um in mm-hmm. medieval iceland um and since that consent whether it's the father's or the the daughter's since that consent was given under duress it could easily be argued that the marriage itself is illegitimate. There are laws about that kind of thing. Okay, which would suggest that this is an abduction. I mean, technically, maybe. It, it certainly looks like it. And uh, questions about the legitimacy of this marriage, quote-unquote marriage, mm-hmm. will pop up again in the saga. Uh, for now, though, let's just call the whole thing highly irregular. It's irregular.
0: Well, uh, yeah. I mean, especially since we're talking about a culture that sometimes approves of abduction marriages. Uh, Mm -hmm. I looked into this one a bit, not deeply, but just enough to get a sense of how critics have read this scene. Uh, I particularly like Thomas Bredsdorf's take on it. Uh, He calls the episode a manifestation of Bjorgolf's erotic drive at an abnormal moment in an abnormal mode. (laughs) And that just about covers it. Uh, So something about the way Bjorgolf's conducted
1: himself makes this even more objectionable than most bride's dealings. Weirdly, yeah, that's right. And it's definitely a controversial act within the family. When they do get back to Bjorgolf's home, his son Brunjolf is pretty salty about this entire event and Yes he is. <laughs> there's a new coolness between the father and the son. And meanwhile, Bjorgolf and Hildred, uh, they have two sons, mm-hmm. Erik and Herik, which is not confusing at all. No. Both no, boys it's be great. <laughs> Both boys are are small boned, but they're handsome and clever enough. Yep. Now, the, uh, the
0: saga is going to leap forward a bit in time and tell us that Bjorgolf soon dies of old age. Brynjolf, who thoroughly disapproved of his father's union with the young woman, kicks Hildurid and her sons off the property at Torgar.
1: Yeah, that's a cold move, but I, I actually understand Brynjolf's motivation here. He's mm. the sole heir to his father's land and the property at Torgar. The marriage to Hildurid threatened that claim and sure enough now he's got two tiny little competitors that have the same <laughs> basic name uh, they're, they're going to be seeking that inheritance uh, these mm-hmm. Herrick and Herrick um, and let's not forget that he's got a son of his own Bard Brynjolfsson to look out for and this is his right. ballad right? which might help to explain his rough handling of his stepmother and her sons
0: mm-hmm. but it is still quite harsh yeah. uh, with no place to go Hilderid returns to her father's farm and raises her sons there and like many boys who grow up without their father,
1: they adopt their mother's name and come to be known as the Hilderidarsons. So Bard grows up on Torger Farm in Halogaland, but his uncles, the uh, Hilderidarsons, uh, they grow up in Leica. Um, incidentally, John, do you know when uh, I first read the saga back, mm-hmm. like this is back like early grad school. <laughs> this is a long time ago. Um, I, and I didn't know, I still don't pronounce things very well anyway, but I, the way I pronounced their, their name was the Hilderidarsons. Almost like they were Almost like they were in like a like a Tolkien narrative, right? The, wow. The Hilderidarsons. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, so <laughs> if you're wondering, uh the key to this whole interlude that we're calling the ballad of Bad Brunjelson. It isn't actually Bard, as I suggested earlier. He plays a role, to be sure, but as in most sagas, the, the tension that arises between two groups usually has something to do with land and access to resources. And in this case, it's the farm at Torgar, the property that Brynjolf inherited from his father, Bjorgolf, that the saga author is really far more interested in here than uh, Bard himself. Yeah, I, maybe the title of
0: the section should have been The Ballad of Torgar Farm, but I like the alliteration better. I went with Bard Brunjolfsson. I can't blame you. It's brilliant. Well, uh, it's at this point that we're told that young Bard has grown up. So we're more or less back in the present tense of the saga now. Harald has been conquering Norway, right? So uh, Kvildolf has refused to commit to either side of the conflicts between Harald and the remaining petty kings. But he's promised to send his son Thorolf to Harald's court, since he's
1: the kind of guy that might like the kind of stuff they get up to in a king's court. That's right. So, So now that we're finally caught up to the present, we can move forward. Mm-hmm. Two things happened that same summer. The first is that Bard gets engaged to a woman named Sigrid, the daughter of a wealthy landowner named Sigurd of Sandness. Uh, and the second thing is that Harold Fairhair summons the men of Halogalan to come and demonstrate their loyalty.
0: Right. Sandness is going to be another one of those properties that becomes very important mm-hmm. later on. Uh, this is more of what we talked about last time. The growing sense of inevitability about Harold's rise means that now there's a bit of a rush among those hoping to curry favor with the new king. And this makes sense, right? The men who are by Harold's side while he's still fighting to rise to power are going to be in a different
1: category among his followers
0: from those who wander in after the fighting's done.
1: Yeah, and Bard and his father want to be among those early birds.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so they rush to Trondheim that same summer without even waiting for Bard's wedding day. And at the end of summer, Bard stays with Harold and becomes his man. He's given a good seat next to Ulver Hump, Harold's court poet, mm. and he gains the nickname Bard the Strong. Oh, That fall... He's there among the gathered men of Trondheim when two new men enter the hall. Olvir's brother, Avon Lamb, and their nephew, a young upstart named Thorolf Kveldufson. And we're back to our narrative. Uh, All the narrative threads are neatly lined up and
0: coming together nicely. Mm -hmm. So these four men are going to become a kind of elite unit within Harald's
1: Hall companions. And they'll have plenty to talk about because they're all related. Okay, so wait a second. This is important. Uh, It's a tangent that we should uh, explore Mm -hmm. a little bit. You need to explain how Bard and Thorolf are related. Sure.
0: Well, this is what we were hinting at earlier about Bard's mother Helga being an important link in our story. All right. Bard is the son of Helga, the daughter of Kettle Hang. Right. We just covered that. Right.
1: Kettle is the son of Halbjorn the Half Troll. Mm Mm-hmm. There you go. Now we're cooking with troll gas, aren't we? Ew. (laughs) Dude, No. What? Troll gas. You think you've got sole propriety over bad jokes on this podcast, John? I don't think so. <laughs> but uh, like I said, this is an important family connection and why it pays to map out the genealogy. Still this gross, is, though. Yeah, this is... <laughs> troll gas. <laughs> this is the link to our family in uh, mm-hmm. uh, Half Halbjorn Half Troll is the maternal uncle of Kveldolf. Exactly. So that makes
0: Queldulf and Kettlehang cousins... So Helga and Thorolf are second cousins, Mm -hmm. which makes, I think, that makes Thorolf (laughs) and Bard second cousins once removed. Exactly. And Olver and Eivind are from Thorolf's mother's family, so all four men are linked through Thorolf Kveldofsen. Yeah, they
1: must have so much to catch up on, you know.
0: Yeah, not at all. Uh, (laughs) But they do catch on to their family connection very quickly. And when Bard has to return home to marry Sigrid Sigurd's daughter, he brings Thorolf along for the trip. Because as he says, Thorolf
1: might meet many kinsmen of high rank here whom he'd never seen or heard of before. And Olvir and Aven travel with them as well. Uh, why exactly? I'm not sure. Why not? This is our core group of friends at this stage in the story. The Corsum Foursum. Four <laughs> peas, one pod. The four muscle tears. I would have gone with four muscle tears, but... Uh... Feel free. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Harold allows his elite quartet of champions to wander off for the summer, and they they have a grand old time in Sandness at the wedding. Mm. Thorolf gets to know some of his trollier relatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bard and Sigrid get on very well, and everyone enjoys themselves. It's a great That's time. That's right. Yeah, these are Thorolf
0: and Bard's salad days.
1: They're young, days
0: carefree. They're allied with a rising power in Norway, and all is well with the world.
1: I've I've been drinking salad days beer. What during the podcast? During yes, the podcast? I have. Nice, nice turn of phrase there. There you go. Um, I'm drinking a founder's better half, and it is delightful. Oh, lovely, and extremely high in alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the end of the podcast should be much more entertaining. It's going to be very interesting. So you said all is well with the world, but I'm going to say that uh, it's not for long. That's oh, see, I knew it. I knew Harold couldn't be trusted.
2: No, I no, knew no, not it was that. No
1: wrong. Harold's fine right now. The <laughs> problem is. That Bard's father, Brunjolf, dies that winter, and Bard oh. has to return north to sort out his inheritance. All right. <laughs> you have to admit, though, it's unnerving to be this
0: close to Harold in a saga for this long and not have anything go wrong.
1: Okay, uh, what does Bard need to sort out? Well, Harold sends Bard off with his permission to inherit all the lands and revenues that his father had held, which means mm-hmm. Bard has sole discretion over the family's holdings. Which shouldn't be a problem because he's an only child. He's an only child, but uh, his father wasn't. Uh, see, the uncle cousins, the <laughs> Hilda Ridersons. See, I, I, keep, I keep feeling like you're trying to steer this into a, some kind of inbreeding joke with that uncle cousin thing. I mean,
0: no, no, not at all. I mean, it, there's a definite sense that this family keeps running into relatives in strange places. And as we'll see, there's a tendency in the clan to marry each other's widows. But this family's problem isn't inbreeding so much as this whole
1: troll werewolf berserk bloodline stuff. Ugh, whatever. See, I think you should focus <laughs> your attention elsewhere. Uh, so Bard stays in Hologalon for a while and becomes a, an important landowner in the north. He's a generous supporter of the king, but he shares his father's dislike of the Hilderidersons. Uh, and like his father, he cuts them out of the inheritance entirely, which is a big move.
0: Yeah, it is. So Bard is now the owner of a great deal of the North, mm-hmm. and his uncle-cousins are living in much humbler circumstances and are treated like family pariahs. More or less, yeah. I mean, at some point, you start to feel like these two are getting a raw deal. Now, the, I don't think the author means for us to feel a tremendous amount of sympathy here. I, at least, I don't, I, I don't think. But, I'm not sure, actually. But Brynjolf and Bard have been pretty vindictive toward two guys who didn't do anything wrong.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: I mean, they're the result of Bjorgolf's bad behavior. But they're
1: being treated like enemies of the family. Yeah, but I mean, they're they're victims of circumstance, and it's a mm-hmm. I think a very real world scenario that they're yes. experiencing and that they represent. Yep. Um, but at this point, they're forced to continue living in estrangement from their father's family. They probably don't have much, and this is their nope. only hope for survival. That's right, right? or for some claim to mm-hmm. to fame, some source of income. Um, but Bard and Thorolf, they have uh, they have more important things to worry about because it's time. It's time, John. It's time? It is time for... Part 5. The
0: Battle of Hofsfjord.
1: Aha. Now this is familiar territory. Yes, it is. If you've been listening to this podcast from the beginning, then you'll know all about... Well, first of all, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But you'll know all about the Battle of Hofsfjord. We've been here before. Yeah. uh,
0: In other sagas, yes. but, But never quite like this. So Havsirun is treated in the
1: sagas as the final battle in the war for Harald's control of Norway. We've been saying all along that Harald's rise is a result of quite a few factors. And one of Mm -hmm. the big ones is that people begin fleeing or switching to Harald's side long before he's actually unstoppable. Their actions create the momentum that actually propels Harald's conquest.
0: Right, and that's true. But despite the flight of Norwegian emigres to all over uh, the north, and even with the men flocking to Harold's banner, there's still sufficient opposition to
1: Harold to mount one last serious attempt against him. So at this point, we're around the year 870, 872 or so. Yes. Um, all right. So Harold's control is mostly in the center and north of the peninsula at this point. There are still a few kings who've been able to nurse their strength, and now they've gathered their forces for a do or die stand against Harold's army. Mm-hmm. The leaders are Thorir Longchin and Kyotvi the wealthy. And together, they have numbers and a navy that's equal to that of Harold's. uh, Equal is a funny word. Uh, Number-wise, they're pretty evenly
0: matched. But that navy part is something of a mislead. Uh, What both sides have is ships. Mm -hmm. But harold has got a fair number of actual warships. Big, stable ships with defensive defensive features. Kyotvi and Thor have slightly more of a variety of ships, as each skipper shows up with his own transportation. Eclectic,
1: one might say. Yeah, it's a, it's a whimsical collection of ships. <laughs> well, it's a bit of a catch-all of, of a navy, I'll admit. Yeah. Uh, so remember in Gretzha's saga, we heard a story of how Onan Treefoot and his friends returned from a raiding party that summer and basically got mm-hmm. drafted into joining Kjotvi's fleet, complete with their ship and crews.
0: Yes, so that's, that's just it. The ships range from small, quick craft to Viking raiding ships like Onan's to cargo ships. So, Harald's got the advantage in quality of ships, but Kyotvi and Thor can match him in quantity
1: and might possibly have an edge in speed. Yeah, but speed's not that important in this battle. No. This is a proper Viking-style sea battle, which is basically a land battle fought on ships. (laughs) Men on both sides hacking at each other with axes, hurling spears. It's not like tactical sailing is a huge part of a battle like this. You just get close and start hitting each other. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of jockeying for
0: position, right, or to ram an opposing ship. But yeah, a lot of the battle comes down to small
1: arms or hand-to-hand fighting from ship to ship. Yeah. Now, there's been a lot of work done on this battle as a historical event. Right, by people who aren't us. Of course, yes. Yeah, we're not going to go into the historical stuff in depth, though I kind of would like to. I wish I I knew someone that was an expert on this to interview because it's such a fascinating subject.
0: I actually have a line on that already. I can talk to you about that later on, but we'll, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that. It's on the list of ever-increasing uh, special episodes we should get to one of these days.
1: <laughs> now, my, my point was just that there's a fair amount of material out there for people who do want to learn about this historical battle.
0: Yeah, there's actually also a pretty extensive project underway right now uh, involving mapping the seabed around Stavanger uh, to try to find the location and size of the battle. It's been going on for about a year, and we can look forward to learning a lot more about
1: the site soon. Hmm, That's so fascinating. Yeah, I would love to hear more about that. Uh, But for now, what we're looking at is the battle as a literary tradition, and there's a lot of info there. Right. So, okay. uh, So the way the battle is described in this saga, Harald's ships sail down
0: from the north, led by Harald's own ship. And on that ship, Harald has over a dozen berserks, mostly manning the oars, and his picked champions, led by Thorolf Kveldefsson, Bard Brynjolfsson, and the Karasins, Avon Lam, and Thor Olver Hump.
1: All at the prow of his ship. What an image, That's right? That's right.
0: That's right. It's great. It's quite a It's quite a. Group. blowing through their hair. Right. That's right. Well, not the That's sea, right. The wind. Mullets flapping in the breeze.
1: <laughs> uh, and all of this means that uh, because they're at the prow of the ship, they're going to be in some of the hardest fighting. Yes. Because one thing that every literary account of the battle agrees on is that Harold's ship is at the center of the worst and the bloodiest brawling, which is a mark right. of a good leader. Right, and the
0: battle is described as a brutal slugfest. Uh, so we'll, I'll just read this section from the saga. They clashed in Hausfjord in the greatest battle King Harald ever fought, and there were heavy losses on both sides. Thoru Longchin, king of Agder, was killed there. Kjofi the wealthy fled with the men he had left, who hadn't been killed or surrendered. But when Harald's troops were inspected... Many had been killed, and others seriously wounded. Thorolf was badly injured, and Bard even worse. None of the men on Harald's ship were unscathed, apart from the few of the berserks, on whom iron would not bite. The king had his men's wounds treated, those who had a chance of living, gave them gifts, and marked
1: out for praise those who he felt deserved it. So this was a battle won by, what, throwing Harold's men at the enemy until they ran out of sharp things to stab into them? What? what? Hey, you, you should have seen the other guys. <laughs> uh, and by the way, speaking of the other guys. Well, I mean, the, the other guys are the ones whose side of the battle we usually see, uh, which is mm-hmm. quite interesting. We don't often get to see the wounded and dying men on Harold's side or the triaging of injured men after this victory. It's, it's quite fascinating. Yeah, true, but that's exactly why this scene is so cool to me. We actually have seen Thorolf and Bard in this battle before. Oh, that's right. You told me about this earlier, but go ahead and explain it. It's cool. This this is a sort of saga crossover moment that I just love. So we know from this saga that Thorolf, Bard, Olvir, and Ivend are the point of the spear in Harald's navy. So to speak, yeah. They're the four guys tasked with fighting at the prow of Harald's ship in the center of battle. A very important exactly. job.
0: Right. They're in the prow of Harald's ship. Now I want to pull a different saga off the shelf for a moment.
1: See, you couldn't have prepared this beforehand.
0: No, I'm doing I'm doing foley work here. See? Oh. Uh, picking up creaky chair, picking up uh-huh. book, page turn, page turn. There it is. Oh, you found it. <laughs> so this is the account of <laughs> Onan Treefoot's perspective at the battle. Okay. Um, except that I actually forgot to grab
1: that
2: book. <laughs> <laughs> <You don't know. laughs>
1: you do all the foley work and you don't even have the guy have. <laughs> hang on just a
0: second <laughs> do you want do you want to stop here or do you want to what do you want to do
1: I can just, no. it's like one how long is it right going to take you right. look at me oh my god what an idiot Welcome back. So you're just going to start like nothing ever happened? Because I'll make sure people know. All right, so here's the section right here. <laughs> you think you're so smooth. Onand
0: drew his ship up alongside long Longchins. Right in the midst of the fray, King Harold sailed up to Thor's ship because Thor was a great berserk and brave fighter. Both sides fought fiercely. Then the king urged his berserks on. They were called wolfskins. Iron weapons would not bite on them, and when they charged, they were unstoppable. Thoror fought valiantly, but was killed on his ship after a brave stand. Then the attackers cleared the ship from stem to stern and chopped through the ropes that held it to the others. It drifted back among the ships. After that, the king's men attacked Onan's ship. Onan was at the bow and fought bravely. Then the king's men said, That man in the gunwale is putting up a tough fight. Let's leave him with some reminders that he has been in a battle. Onan was standing with one foot at the gunwale, striking a blow, when someone lunged at him. And he warded off the attack and he buckled at the knees. At that moment, one of the men in the prow of the king's ship struck at him, hitting uh-huh. him just below the knee and chopping off his leg.
1: Wait a minute
0: now. Onan was put out of action immediately.
1: Most of his men were killed. See, I remember doing this in grad school when mm-hmm. we discovered this little piece. And it was <laughs> it was exciting then and it's equally exciting now. Uh, isn't it great? Because I mean, this w- is the kind of thing that makes me want to do that interactive
0: saga database Right, something that would group events like Hausjord or the burning of Niall or the oh, all yeah. thing of 1000 AD. It's amazing to see how these narratives come together at various places
1: in that literary Absolutely. historical record. And, and the re- the real question here is, which of those four men was the one to chop off Onan right. Treefoot's leg? Right? Was it was it Thorolf? Was it Aven Lamb? Was it Olver Hump? Or was well, what it What I Barth like is Brunnelson? it was more than one of them. Right? Because one of them goes high and one of them goes low, that's and that's true, how they yeah. get him.
0: Right. That they work as a team because they've been they've been kind of companions for a while and they know how to work together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so cool. But but it is important to occasionally restate that we are talking about the version of history in these sagas. It's not the actual historical record. And I'm sure if we eventually oh, totally be a historian, it's mm-hmm. going to be very different. Yes. Now, this is shared universe stuff. Right. Where a, a shared idea of historical events is then informed by various narratives, which can then inform later narratives. Yeah. Um, which means that even in the shared imagination of saga authors and audiences, there there might be a tendency to steer toward one or another interpretation of events. Right. So, well, for one, uh, Hausfjord is the culmination of Harald's rise and the consolidation of Norway in this saga. Mm-hmm. In, in all sagas, really. But but yeah, sure. that's that's what I'm driving at. Historically, things are much more complicated than saga narratives tend to make them out to be. Aren't they always? Yeah, they are. Yes. Yeah, so... Hausfjord is probably one of the
0: major battles in the forging of Norway as a kingdom.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: But my impression has always been that Hausfjord's centrality to the sagas, it probably comes from the number of settlement families who arrived
1: in Iceland immediately before or after the battle. I mean, we we shouldn't undersell it. Norwegians Mm -hmm. thought Hausfjord was important too. Sure. It was a crucial moment in the unification process. But it's very much entered the national mythology as the moment when Harald's control of the peninsula was finally complete. Mm-hmm. And that's almost certainly not the case, right? But it does get reinforced by things like the Sverddefjell or the uh, Swords in the Rock monument in Stavanger. Sure, I mean a, a collection of thirty-foot swords kind of have a way of catching people's attention. <laughs> sure. And, they do. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, that's the sculpture of Stavanger, uh, a group of massive bronze swords stabbing into the ground, commemorating Havsjord. And I'll put those. Uh, I'll put that picture in the. Uh, in oh the show yeah, notes yeah, so no, it's so a so great one. See it. Uh, but okay, so we, we left Bard, Thorolf, Olvir, and Avend among
0: the injured after the battle.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Onund managed to get a few blows in before he lost his leg. Uh, Thorolf and his uncle slowly recover from their wounds, but Bard's too badly hurt. He's dying. He's dying in a rush. Oh, no. I mean, we,
1: uh, Didn't we just introduce him? How could he be dying? Death waits for no man, Andy. Oh, well, before the bell tolls for Bard, he's got a few <laughs> things to say. All right, but no soliloquies, please. We're a little pressed for time. Oh, <laughs> We got a lot more to cover here. Uh, Bard gets Harold to agree that he, Bard, should be allowed to decide how to bequeath his holdings, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very interesting, right, yes. pin, right? That he has to get this approved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he then announces I, I want my kinsman and companion, Thorolf, to inherit everything my lands and my goods I want That's to right. entrust milk the moment Andy milk it My, it's going to take a long time <laughs> my, my wife and son to his care <laughs> <laughs> I trust him best of all for such a
2: task <sighs>
1: and then he dies that's, that's,
0: that's his death. Ah. <laughs> yeah, he, presumably he also, he dies after getting permission from
1: the king too. Well, I mean, he is, <laughs> he is the king's man. Uh, but we're, we're getting a very clear sense of how allegiance to Harold isn't just about honor and wealth. Mm-hmm. Bart needs special permission to dispose of his own lands and wealth and his wife as mm-hmm. he wants without any interference from, from Harold. This is right. pretty important and I, I, I'd like to talk about yeah. it a little bit later if we can.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is just the sort of thing you have to assume were to elicit a few knowing murmurs from an Icelandic audience. Absolutely, Especially
1: in the 13th century, right? A king who stands between a man and his own land. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Or he stands between a man and his own heirs, for that matter, which is maybe sure. more important. Right. But nevertheless, Thorolf is now the proud, if grieving, owner of a farm and some very nice property and uh, taxation rights in Finnmark. Not bad. Well, it's a nice consolation prize for losing your best friend. Yeah. All this means that Thorolf has to make another trip to Halogalan to lay claim to his inheritance and a lovely young bride. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything goes smoothly for him, for the most part. Even Sigrid, Bard's widow, uh, takes the news of his death pretty well, and honestly, she doesn't even seem to mind being bequeathed <laughs> to Thorolf as part of the, the chattels of the farm. Oh, chattels is a bit harsh. Uh, what about Sigrid's <laughs> son, Grimm? Well, you know what? The saga doesn't waste a lot of time on this, but I assume that there's a heartwarming scene of Thorolf and Grimm washing the family dog together, having a little heart-to-heart <laughs> under the under the tree. He puts his hand on his shoulder and says, Sure. Um. <laughs> no, <okay. laughs> they burn the family dinner together, have a good laugh, and then make some mac and cheese. Yeah, that, that sort of thing. You know, you know right, how it yeah. goes. Throw, throwing a ball around in the yard. While Cats in the Cradle plays in the background. Sure. Yeah. Your father's not coming home. (laughs) (laughs) But I have this pocket watch. Yes. (laughs) Is that a Pulp Fiction reference? It is. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) So Thorolf, uh, with his newfound land and riches, throws a big party that fall. And he keeps a large band of men with him during the winter. And that's an expensive proposition. But Mm -hmm. Thorolf, he's a generous man. he's got enough land to provide for a large (coughs) household like this. And his land holdings, well, they just keep increasing because Sigrid's father, Sigurd dies that winter and his land holdings are added to what Thorolf already owns. So He's just if, raking it in at this point, isn't if, he? If you've uh-huh. ever wondered why these guys marry off these women and why women are kind of chattel, uh-huh. it's for this moment when their fa- that woman's father dies. Uh-huh. Uh, now, the amount that Thorolf owns is actually
0: getting to be a bit of a problem. He started to look like a minor king And he spent
1: the last couple of years helping to put an end to minor kings in Norway. Yeah, yeah, hang on to that thought. And he's not just starting to look like a minor king, he's kind of, he does act like one, you know? A little bit. So for now, there is one possible solution to the problem of having too much land. Oh, yeah. So shortly after Thorolf takes
0: over Bard's holdings, he's visited by the cousin uncles, Harak and Hararek Lidriddison. And they want to make a claim ...on a part of the land that originally was owned by their father, Bjorgolf, Bard's grandfather. Mm -hmm. But Thorolf's not having any of it.
1: I knew Brudnjolf well, and Bard better. They were men of such integrity that they they would have given you any share of Bjorgolf's inheritance they knew to be yours by right. But I heard when you made this claim with Bard, he said you were bastards. Uh, We expected nothing but honorable treatment from Bard.
0: But our dealings with him were not long. Now that the inheritance is passed outside of our family, we cannot completely ignore what we have lost. We can produce witnesses to testify to our noble birth. I didn't uh,
1: realize we were in a parody gangster movie here. Well, you know, we're talking about family honor and family stuff here. Oh, okay. But I don't don't see... It seemed appropriate. I don't see Thorolf adopting the uh, stereotypical, perhaps offensive uh, uh, Italian impression that you've got going.
0: Well... What I'm talking about here is kind of the accent of everybody I grew up with, so I, <laughs> I regard myself as being well within my rights.
1: So being from Queens, <laughs> hey, we can talk like this. That's right. I want everyone to know that he's using his hands while he, while he talks as well. Of a course I of, am. else should I talk? A lot of gestures. Um, Thorolf replies, I don't consider that you have any birthright. I was told that your mother was taken by force and carried off to your father's house. See, now that's harsh. That is truly harsh. Uh, he just called them bastards.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, but that's, but it's the idea, I mean, to blame them for the fact that their mother was abducted.
1: He's not blaming them. He's just telling them the facts, which is that they don't have any claim to the land because they're Mm -hmm. not legitimate children. And if we interpret the event that way, it's more or less true. It doesn't make it any less harsh, but it's true. and we also know that even though he was forced into it Hilda's father did consent to the quote unquote marriage so thoroff's version of events in some ways adds up and in other ways it doesn't uh, it's yeah, it's it, a matter of interpretation re- i think
0: it really doesn't i mean it's we saw what happened right it wasn't a good situation but the letter of the law in terms of making it a marriage rather than an abduction was adhered to mhm uh, it, this is, in any case, this is a nastier side to Thorolf than we're used to seeing. Uh, but the legal status of the Hildersons' birth is important. Are they the legitimate sons of an important landowner, as they claim? Because if their mother was taken by force, their status is very different,
1: right? They'd be a concubine's sons at that point. Yeah, which would also explain the use of their mother Hildred's name as their patronymic, or rather a, it would be a matronymic, Right.
0: Right. And that's a clear signal for some scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Torfi Tolinius has argued that they were essentially treated as the sons of an unfree woman. And that's going to
1: affect their ultimate fate in this saga. And not everyone agrees with that, to be just no. clear. Uh, but whatever else it may be right now, their status is shown the door by Thorolf and not quite happy about it. Right. That is the current status, yes. Uh, and they're going to be looking to do something about it. Oh, that's so- not ominous at all.
0: Part six, Thorolf of the North.
1: Sorry, uh, the North. What's that? Yeah, it's like Earth but colder. Oh,
0: uh, okay, uh, so
1: I'm sorry. For... Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Are People, you apologizing to our listeners? I'm sorry. <laughs> I want to take this moment. We should even Don't have know. a moment of silence <laughs> for the death of humor.
0: Oh, it's. <laughs> We can go so much lower. Uh, So Thorolf has sort of fallen into being one of the most powerful men in northern
1: Norway. Which, remember, is going to be a problem. Yes. He's still a loyal supporter of Harold, but Harold, generally, like most kings, doesn't like to share his power. Right. So this next section is
0: about the growing inevitability of conflict. Yeah. On the one side, we have Thorolf's good fortune and his tendency toward, we can call, flashy displays of his wealth. On the other side is Harald's ascendance as overking and his jealous
1: desire to be the center of power in all of Norway. And into that mix, we now have the Hilderidersons, mm-hmm. who are Harold supporters who see themselves as having been cheated of their inheritance by Thorolf. And these are a particularly dangerous group of people because mm-hmm. they're they're guys that are kind of desperate.
0: yeah. And they're and, not wrong about having been cheated, right? Yeah. But we'll, we'll move on for now. Uh, Thorolf takes a small army of 90 men into Finnmark that winter to collect tribute for Harald. Yeah, that's a lot of tax collectors. And he, they make a, a big deal of how many the guys. Oh, are yes. Season. It's about three times as many as Brynjolf and Bard used to send. And Thorolf's turning the whole thing into a multifaceted business enterprise. He shakes down the Finnmark people, the uh, the Sami, and frightens them into a bigger payment than Harald's ever gotten before. But he also brings along goods and money of his own and
1: manages some lucrative trading with the Sami. Yeah, so it's not all trading and taxes, though. He does run into the hostile Kulfings in mm-hmm. that same region, and he kills several groups of them, 30 yep. on one occasion, 20 on another. Now, Kulfings, uh, have we mentioned them on the show before? Uh, I don't I don't think so. Oh,
0: I think we should cover them and probably the Sami. I mean, we've kind of mentioned them a few times now. Mm. Uh, one of the side stories of this section is the extension of the saga narrative into places we don't normally
1: go. This is one of the few occasions of the sagas when we see real action in Finnmark. Right. And there are two different groups involved here, which is fascinating. Well,
0: there's more than two. As the author explains, Finnmark is a vast territory bordered by the sea west and north and east, while Norway lies south of it. There are a number of independent kingdoms up that way, right? Uh, right now, we're dealing with the Sami people and the Kulfingar, whoever they turn out to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a little later, we're going to see
1: Thorolf working together with the king of Kvenland. Yeah. You know... Um, this is one of those moments where I feel like either this is a quote from Snorri Sturluson, the, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the infamous Snorri Sturluson, because it sounds exactly like the beginning of the Heimskringla. The, this
2: oh description—it well, has of the such a
0: feeling, doesn't it? Of of like, almost like a travel guide.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. Come to sunny Finmark, a vast territory bordered by the sea. <laughs> yes, right. Um, but it's as you will see, it's a complicated part of the world, and mm-hmm. there's no clear hierarchy of power. Although in the long term, Harold may have designs on the region. For right now, they're outside his conception of a unified Norway. It doesn't really count.
0: Right. All right. So why don't you explain the Sami quickly, and then I'll talk about the cool
1: things. Oh, thank you. Uh, all <laughs> right. But uh, let's let's lightning round this. Keep it short because uh, uh-huh. we should move on. So 30 seconds each. If you go over 30 seconds, oh. you're done. No, 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 no. I can't clear my throat in under two minutes. Two minutes. <laughs> all right. Fine. You're going first. Oh, I'm going first. All right, then. Uh, okay, so is <laughs> that count toward my, towards my two minutes? Yes, clock's right. Does this count? Oh, okay. Yes, it does. So the, the first thing is to explain what That's we right, mean by Sami. You still use Psalm. the Denorian if you need to. Why are you interrupting me? This is my time. <laughs> You're down to a minute forty-five. <laughs> so the first thing to explain is what we mean by Sami. Medieval writers were sort of inexact when it came to identifying ethnic or linguistic groups, uh, especially groups they didn't have extensive contact with. Right. So who are the Sami? Well see that's the that's the problem. The Sami are a northern Scandinavian people who live across the top of Norway, Sweden, and Finland and extend into the northwestern tip of Russia. But the the name Sami, it only appears once in the sagas, in Fattenstala saga, in fact. Is that the, the, the three Finnish clairvoyants? That's right, yeah, the one that they lock themselves up in the Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so they refer to themselves as the Semisveinar, Uh, The young Sami, the Semisvenar. I don't know how to say that. Sami boys, yeah. Yeah. Generally, Icelanders call these people Finns, although the term Lapir also appears. Uh, The problem is that the texts are usually not treating these people with any particular Mm. care or focus. So it's hard to say whether they're different terms for the same people, overlapping groups, or maybe they refer to different categories entirely. Finn for an ethnicity, Lápir for a political identity, for example. Um, Right, say. So on the
0: face of it, that makes some sense. And the, the writers we're talking about, who are mostly Icelandic, don't have extensive contact knowledge of the people of Finnmark. The Sami or Finns or whatever we decide to call them. So it makes sense that the terms of use would be somewhat inexact. It's like the
1: English calling all Vikings Danes. Exactly. Yeah, good point. So the majority of texts seem to use Finn in that way. It's a catch-all for the people who live in the northernmost reaches of Scandinavia. But the lack of contact idea, um, that's
0: less true in the 13th century when Aeol's saga is being written, right? There are at least a few accounts
1: of travel and trade with Finnmark written in that time. Yeah, and those accounts do seem to be pretty influential. And given that this saga is written right around the time those accounts are produced, Uh it's quite possible that the descriptions of the Sami in Aeol's saga are influenced by those sources. Nice. All right. All right. So, Interesting. oh, and people who are interested in this, there are a couple of articles by uh, Herman Paulson and Jeremy D'Angelo, our uh, hey. our colleague from the University of Connecticut, mm-hmm. uh, on this particular subject. Um, and they're great. They're a great introduction to the whole Sami and saga writing question. Right. friend of the podcast, Jeremy D'Angelo. Yeah, but does he listen? I have no idea. <laughs> So if, Jeremy, if you're listening, please get in touch with us. We just mentioned your name in the podcast, right. so come on. Friend of the podcasters, at least. <laughs> there you go. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll add those, uh, those texts to the bibliography as well. So again, if you want to access that bibliography, um, you've got mm-hmm. to go to our website, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. And there's right. a, a little tab called Further Reading. And if you hover your mouse over that, um, that'll lead you to the Ale Saga bibliography. But uh, So that's the Sami I don't know if I was two minutes But uh, why don't you tell us about the Kulfings Yeah, I, I wasn't actually
0: timing <laughs> oh. uh, Okay, so the Kulfings are an undefined people Who are active in the same places as the Norse peoples During the Viking Age Right from the 9th, 12th centuries They show up in Icelandic writing They show up in carved runic inscriptions In Byzantine legal texts There's even a reference to the East Kulfings In a poem attributed to Thorbjörn Hornklófi In the 9th century Mm. Now, they get around, in other words Yeah, yeah. uh, in the history as well as the
1: literature But no one really explains who they are or where they're from Or even whether they're an ethnicity or a linguistic group or a kind of free-floating warrior organization or something else
0: Uh, Yeah, exactly
1: Uh, That's one of the more
0: popular theories That the Kulfingar were a semi-professional organization that people from the north joined up with the Byzantine references back that up, actually. The, uh, the Kulfing were a part of the Byzantine army, like the Varangian Guard. And Judith Jesh has that Skaldic verse book from a decade ago. Uh, she suggested that the name Kulfa might refer to a ship's keel, which would suggest that Kulfing might be a seafarer's name, not unlike the name Viking. Yeah, so try, try to remember the name of that book. If I could remember it off the top of my head, I wouldn't have called it that Skaldic verse book, would I? <laughs>
1: I'll see, now that's
0: uh, nice. Besides, I'm not the only one
1: dropping names left and right here, you know. Well, I mean, uh, check the footnotes for this episode, people. We will figure out what the title <laughs> is and right. uh, we'll include it. But then there's the evidence of this saga and some Eastern sources that treat the Kulfings cool like a people situated in the north somewhere alongside the Sami. Sure. Yeah, well, a few people have tried to solve this problem
0: based on clues from those sources, uh, Barthi Gudmundsson suggested that the Kulfingar might be a Swedish group that pushed across into northern Norway in the 9th century. And a few scholars, including some heavy hitters, I have to say, like, uh, Karl Ravin and Sigurtha the Nordahl, have associated the name with a Finnic people living in what's now Russia. Uh, others like to keep it vague and just say that the name is meant to distinguish the Kulfings
1: from other Scandinavians. Okay, so, uh, I think we're, we, we've done enough on the, uh, this little, uh, digression. Mm-hmm. But it's it's an interesting one, and this is, you know, I know we've interrupted the, the whole narrative and gone off on this, this little thing, but that's part of why you people listen to this podcast, right? Is it? it's,
2: it's, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not for your jokes, that's for sure. Oh,
1: oh, oh, hurtful, hurtful. But the the upshot is that the Kulfings in this saga are a hostile group challenging Thorolf and Harold's control of Finnmark, but they get effectively dealt with by Thorolf and his massive army of accountants. Right. Yeah. Um, if you're going to get reductive about it, that
0: explains it, yes. Uh, I think we could do an entire episode on the cool things, though. Well, then add it to the list of things that will never get done. Oh, I will. Uh, I keep a list. Uh, so apart from the violence and bloodshed, uh, the winter and spring go very well for Thorolf. He's collected heaps of tribute for Harald and uses his own profits to outfit himself and his men with excellent weapons, ships, clothing, you name it. He also has a huge dragon-headed longship made for himself. He's, that's expensive.
1: It is. A huge dragon-headed longship. Absolutely. Mm. He's living the good life. He is indeed. And when Harold comes to Helogaland in the summer to collect the tribute from Thorolf, Thorolf wants to share his lifestyle of the rich and famous with his king. Show him how <laughs> good things have gone. That's right. So he throws a huge blowout of a feast and well, there's there's no way to overstate this really. Yeah. Thorolf invites five hundred people to attend the <laughs> feast, and that's in addition to the three hundred that Harold's bringing with him. Right, eight hundred guests imagine, for three days. Imagine the bill for that thing. <laughs> yeah, Thorolf has had a special, supersized building constructed just to hold this party. With purpose-built benches for serving ale to eight hundred people at once, uh, there there are decorated shields all the way around the building on the outside. Food storage, kitchens, you name it. He's got this whole thing built up. I, I'm not gonna lie. This sounds like a party you and I would not be invited to. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe you
0: wouldn't be, but I—that's right. I forgot you're a secret frat boy. <laughs> I'm
1: at Ole Miss now. <laughs> I'm in the thick of things. Sure. Yeah. But in the middle of it all, a high seat is built just for Harold's use. Well, what more could any egomaniac want? Not to be shown up by an underling who can feed ah. 800 people. Right. Harold spends the entire three-day party, thin-lipped and grumpy, glaring around at the opulence of Thorolf's home and what he can lay out. Well, right. And really, it's a court.
0: Right. It is It's Thorolf's court Which is the problem mm-hmm. And Thorolf catches on fairly quickly That he's bruised the king's ego oh, how so on the he, morning Because
1: was it he, 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 The fact that Harold's just sitting there Right the three days of pouting
0: Is sort of a giveaway yeah, Exactly <laughs> Like what What's up with him uh, So on the morning of the third day Harold is making a hasty departure And Thorolf escorts the king to the beach And shows him The dragon prow
1: ship that he'd had made See, that's such a this. This scene bothers me a lot because mm-hmm. Thorolf just doesn't get it. Right, he's taking it out and saying, "Look at this gigantic weapon of war that wait, I but have." But wait, but wait, and then Reed. he said, "Hold on, listen." He says, <laughs> "I want you to have this ship, my king, and to respect my intention in having so many men here as a gesture of honor to you, not as a challenge." Now. Right. John Also please don't kill me <laughs> Well that's part of what he's trying to get done. Right That's part of what he's implying And But but what really Who gives giant Massive weapons of war Ships of war As gifts John Thorolf. But regularly in the saga Kings <laughs> do that Not <laughs> underlings yeah. You don't give a yeah. giant ship of war to a king You if get you really- one from a king
0: Right. In Vattensdala saga, um Harold was Harold himself was giving gifts of large ships to people like Ingemund.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is it just doesn't it, it doesn't add up. Thorolf is making mistake after mistake here in right. his handling of a king. here's what I want to
0: ask. So this ship that he gets from Thorolf here, is this the ship he gives to Ingemund later? Because that's also a dragon prow ship. That's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> He's like,
1: take this stupid ship like, I I've got it. this extra ship. Nothing but bad memories. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the, the point is, it kind of works, I guess. Harold doesn't kill uh Thorolf. Mm. Um he cheers up. Uh he feels like Thorolf is honest, being honest with him and Well, or is becomes, knuckling
0: under with appropriate humility.
1: Yeah. So he becomes more friendly with the other guests and he even returns to the hall for the final day of the festivities. Everything's right. okay. I guess this ship has uh, achieved its purpose
0: Right So what we're dealing with here Is an underling Who has to not only Lavishly entertain And praise his king But then also Give the king gifts So that he isn't offended By the lavish entertainment And praise Yeah Pretty much Yeah it's hard to imagine Why Icelanders don't like The idea of kings <laughs> I know right uh, <laughs> I mean, More to the point This is a pretty good indication Of what Icelanders didn't like About the idea Of kingship Yes Harold's being set up here as a collection of the worst
1: traits of kings from a non-monarchist's point of view. Yeah, you've got a paranoid megalomaniac in a shiny hat that controls all of the land in the the realm. That's a problem.
0: Yeah, insert universally appropriate political commentary here. Uh, Yes, and the problem with someone like that is that you can only keep them happy when you're physically present and able to keep feeding their ego with your attention and resources.
1: Megalomaniacs uh, who are paranoid love to have their egos fed. That's right. Yeah. We see a lot of that these days. Yeah. Sadly. But as king... <laughs> did I go too far? No, no. I think it's...
0: <laughs> like I said, it's, and it's universally appropriate. Everybody yes. thinks there's a politician on the opposite side of the
1: aisle who is uh, exactly this guy. Yeah. But as king, Harold has to keep moving and once he's out of Thorolf's company, and, and, and I should clarify, the reason he has to keep moving is he has to check in with all of the different um, right. men that he has underneath him. Right. Uh, There's sounds- also the problem that kings in the Middle Ages
0: always had of using up the local resources.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. This this household, I mean, Harold is traveling with 300 men. Yeah. Right. You can only stay in one place for so long before you've
1: used up all the available resources. Oh, absolutely. And you have to move on. And there's nothing more embarrassing or or frustrating for one of the vassals mm-hmm. of a lord than having the lord visit when you have to pay for absolutely all, all that <laughs> that comes with his visit, right? Because um, you have to make it look like you're doing really well, <laughs> so you probably right. go into debt when that happens. Absolutely, um, but not thorough. But not too well. Not too well. <laughs> well, Thorolf doesn't quite get that yet. He's he's a little bit new to this, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so once he's out of Thorolf's company, uh, there there are others around to whisper in the royal ear. Right, people like the Hilda Riddersons, for example. Funny you should mention them, John. Yeah. It turns out that they're the ones that are going to host the king just a few oh. weeks later. What are they odds? Now, they aren't popular men, and they can't come close to matching Thorolf's spendy ways. But they're good at flattering the king, and Harold passes the time with them quite happily. Mm -hmm. Um, Something about flatterers really uh, intrigues him. Yeah, yeah. And it's not long before Harak Hilduridusen brings up the subject of Thorolf. Uh Uh-huh. You know, the actual speech Harak makes is a whopper.
0: Uh, We can't possibly include all of it. Uh, But the long and the short of it is that he
1: frames everything that happened at Thorolf's place as a failed assassination attempt. That involved giving Harold three days of over-the-top partying and a gift of the longship. To assassinate him?
0: Yeah. You see, my king, when all that trickery failed to work on you and the the nerve failed them, they opted
1: for the best alternative, which was to hush it up. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you a ship. He's a nice ship. I'm going to give you a nice <laughs> ship because I love you. Yeah, but Harold, uh, he, he buys into this. Oh, but he also- absolutely does, right? It yeah. feeds
0: everything that he already believes about Thorolf. Exactly. And Harak has a solution in mind as well. You should trust your holdings here in Hologaland to less extravagant people, who will serve you more loyally. People whose families come from here, and whose kinsmen have performed
1: these tasks for you before. Do you have anyone in mind, Herrick?
0: Well, my brother and I, uh, you know, our father was the king's agent here for many years. My brother and I are prepared and willing to serve you in any capacity.
1: Yes, yeah, not exactly a surprise, is it? <laughs>
0: Maybe not for us. I mean, we know the whole story behind the Hyderician's uh, disenfranchisement. But for Harald, Harak's words confirm all his most paranoid suspicions about Thorolf. And the brothers keep traveling so as to accidentally run across Harald's path over the next few months. And they always find
1: opportunities to reinforce those insinuations about Thorolf's plots. Yeah, not that Harold needs much reinforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, he was already primed to believe the worst about Thorolf, which suggests something about the paranoia of his position. Absolutely. Um, if, you, if you look at this thing from Harold's point of view, mm-hmm. I, I, he's in a precarious position. He's he's experimenting yep. with a new form of government. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's introduced feudalism. Um, mm-hmm. He understandably is nervous about how everyone's going to take this and what their response right. is going to be. So, Thorolf's success, the success that Harold made possible for him, mm-hmm. it actually makes Harold feel rather insecure. And Harold doesn't like feeling insecure. No, he does not. Uh, what Thorolf needs now is an ally in King Harold's court. Well, what he's got is his uncle, Olver Hump. Eh, it'll do for a start. I mean, that's what he's got. Thorolf sends his friend and standard bearer, Thorgil's boomer, uh, to deliver a tribute to the king. But when Thorgil arrives, he finds that the king is rather cold towards him. Despite the fact that he's brought a massive amount of treasure, Mm. he's simply ignored for a full day. He's left to twist in the wind, and Thorgil's then approaches Olvir to find out what's wrong. And he learns of the king's anger and his suspicions towards Thorolf. Yeah. Eventually, Olvir and Thorgil's are able to talk Harold into calming down, and eventually, Harold even makes a show of being happy with the large tribute from Thorolf's lands.
0: Yeah, he makes a show of it, but then in the middle of that show, he tells Thorgil's, "Well, it's such a shame that Thorolf seems to be disloyal to me and wants to kill me,"
1: which kind of puts a damper on the rest of the visit. <laughs> yeah, it would. Uh, Thorgil's <laughs> and Olvir. Uh, and everyone else there argues for Thorolf's innocence, uh, mm-hmm. which speaks to Thorolf's reputation, which right. in itself should be a concern for Harold. If everyone loves Thorolf, right, Ulf. right, everyone is willing to speak out against something Harold's just said. Uh, yeah, that that that's potentially a problem. Um, mm-hmm. But the general consensus is that this slander must have come from evil men. Harold eventually listens hey, to what <laughs> 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 Harold eventually listens to what they're saying, accepts Thorolf's probable innocence. And sends Thorgils off with a, a friendly wave. Goodbye. Yes, yeah, so Harold is just a weather vane in a hurricane, isn't he? Well, I mean, it's a feature of his character to be swayed by whoever speaks to him last, which, again, is something of what the Icelanders are perhaps thinking about kingship. Right. And right. they are, again, I want to reiterate that this saga is being written at a moment when the Icelanders are debating whether to. Mm-hmm capitulate give in to the king of Norway who wants to control that territory right or whether to resist and maintain their independence um so this is a it's a, an important question and this saga is exploring the potential problems with that yep. but also the potential benefits perhaps but 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 as we were saying earlier he he's also a bit obsessed with the idea that Thorolf's good fortune and popularity make him a threat to Harold's throne Right, but I think the sequences in the story make it clear that it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Right. Thorolf's
0: growing estrangement from Harold means that Thorolf's successes challenge Harold rather than bolstering his own image as Thorolf's king. Yeah, but that estrangement only
1: exists because Harold keeps treating Thorolf as disloyal. Yeah, and that's probably fair. And now that Thorgil's returned to Thorolf with the story of Harold's erratic and unreliable friendship. Well, Thorolf is going to be increasingly on his guard. Uh,
0: there was there's one more point. Uh, Olvir deduced that it was the Hilderidusons who had slandered Thorolf to
1: the king, so Thorolf also knows who to blame for his situation. But he's a little busy at the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, Thorolf returns to collecting the year's tributes from the north. This time with one hundred men to back him up. A mm-hmm. hundred men. Too many. That seems like a lot of men, John. I, well, how many men would you have along if you knew the king was gunning for you? Yeah, I, you know, I don't think I know 100 people, let alone 100 <laughs> people who would back me in a fight with a king.
0: Well, I mean, don't go showing up kings with your New Year's Eve parties and you shouldn't have a problem. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Thorulf spends another year collecting tribute in the north and dealing with attacking
1: marauders up there as well. Yeah, this is the, that raid we mentioned earlier, the one where he's, he's working with a local king.
0: Yeah, uh, Thorolf and his hundred men ally with King Faravid of Kvenland in the Finnmark provinces. Working with 300 of Faravid's men, Thorolf's crew attacks and destroys a large band of raiding
1: Karelians. Karelians are from the east. Yeah, they're probably attacking from what today would be the extreme northwestern corner of Russia. Uh, It's right by the Finnish border. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, and you're a resident Russian expert, so you've probably heard of these guys. No, I uh, lived in the Far East, so I have no idea.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, well, you know, it's like being, you know, from Chicago. You know, you've met Steve. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Thor- <laughs> so Thorolf grabs their leader in the fight, punches him in the face, and you wel- yells, Welcome to North!"
1: He absolutely does not do that, and I have no. I assume you're doing something that you think is clever, but uh, wow, I don't know. Uh,
0: well, even without snappy '90s style action movie dialogue, the battle oh. is quite a bloodbath. Uh, the Norwegians have better equipment, and the element of surprise, and they just decimate the Karelians. Uh, unfortunately, we don't get an exact count of the dead, which I know is heartbreaking for you in the body count.
1: This whole section, with the exception of one attack on the uh, the north, mm-hmm. there we had the Battle of Harvestfjord. I know we got two people dead out of that. Two, two. Yep, we should be able to do a thousand. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> nope. It's uh, almost like the authors don't care about our podcast, John.
0: I am sorry. What's uh, going on here? <laughs> body count or no body count? Thorolf's doing very well. And he returns south with another record-breaking pile of tribute treasure. <laughs> but as he makes his way toward the king, Thorolf begins to hear rumors
1: about the slanders that have been told about him. Yeah, it's more of the same lies. But this time, Thorolf learns the names of the people mm. masterminding this rift between Harald and himself. The lie spreaders.
0: Yeah, you know, it's 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 Harak and Hararik. We, we
1: know this.
2: Right? We okay, already... yeah.
1: yeah, we know this, but this yeah. is when Thorolf gets confirmation of their meddling. Right, before he only had the suspicion, because his, mm-hmm. uncle, his uncle had deduced
0: it, but now he actually learns from multiple sources. Yeah. So this whole time, Thorolf has been overthrowing kings in the north I and collecting you. record-breaking taxes for Harald, and now the Hilduridsons have been renewing their assault on Thorolf's reputation. And Thorulf's had just about enough of this court intrigue crap. He decides to head down to Trondheim himself
1: and sort things out. And that's what Thorolf will be dealing with in the next section of the saga— which will be the third and final part of our introductory mini-saga of Thorolf Kveldofsson. I mean, I don't want to critique here, but doesn't that sort of suggest a bit of a spoiler? Third and final section? Well, it's the end of that section. Who knows? Uh-huh. Maybe the author has a, a trick or two up his sleeve. Maybe Thorolf is going to flee to Iceland. Maybe Thorolf will, I don't know, go somewhere else. Maybe he'll survive. Who knows?
0: Oh, very nice cover. Totally natural. I'm buying Thank it. You. Uh, all right. Well, if we're winding things up, I want to talk a little bit about that stuff that's going on with the uh, Hilderittsons. All right. Uh, They're being set up as antagonists, right? I mean, in some ways, they're responsible for sparking off this feud between Kveldolf's clan and the kings of Norway. And that's going to shape a lot of this saga. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
0: Really, I mean, it's the thing that ties the two parts of the saga together, right? This Thorolf saga and the Nail saga. But it's left mostly unexamined that, as we said, the Hilderittsons get royally screwed over, if I can if I'm allowed the pun, uh, by a succession of people who are otherwise positive figures. I mean, it seems obvious to me, maybe to most readers, but it doesn't seem that obvious to our author. Uh, take Paulson and Edwards, for example, uh, who have uh, edited Ail Saga. They describe this section as, "...a man of wealth marries twice. One of the two marriages is of dubious legality, and the effect on the family of two conflicting lines of descent leads to conflict with the kings of Norway." That analysis totally robs the Hilduridusons of their legitimate grievances. Definitely. Right. Let's look at their case very briefly. First, Brydjolf turns them and their mother out of the house on their father's death. Mm-hmm. And whatever you may think of Bjorgolf's abduction marriage of Hilderid, it's certainly not her fault. No. Nor is it the fault of her children. Uh, Bard then inherits everything on the death of Brydjolf, but the Hilduridusons are once again cut out of the inheritance completely essentially because Bard inherits his father's prejudice against them. And finally, Thorolf inherits land, title, wealth, taxation rights, wife and child from Bard, and their kin relationship is far, far more tenuous than the Hilderiddersons can claim as Bard's uncles. But when they approach Thorolf and ask, not for the entirety of Bard's bequeathment, but merely their share of the holdings from their father... Thorolf calls them bastards, mocks them for their mother having been abducted by their father, and refuses to give them anything. It's cold. It's cold. William Penchak, I think, comes the closest on this. He at least acknowledges that this is pretty rotten of Thorolf. Uh, He says, uh, Thorolf here is not the likable young man he was before he went to Harald's court. He is an active agent of tyranny, fighting to extend his empire into Finnmark and denying a legitimate, if not strictly legal, claim.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love Penchak, mm-hmm. that book, uh, The Conflict of Law and Justice yep. in Icelandic that's where Sagas. I'm quoting from, yep. Very early on in grad school, started playing with that book and it's a, always it's great, go back to it. Yeah, it's a great one. Yeah, it's solid work, which, uh,
0: mm-hmm. if we don't already have it on the list, we should definitely add that to the list of yeah. sources. Uh, everyone should just read that just as, you know, just a, a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh but But, uh, I mean... Harak and Harak have been treated really shabbily by Brynjolf, by Bard, and by Thorolf, and each time the excuse is, the last guy wouldn't have done it unless they deserved it. It's true. Uh, I know the narrative doesn't really want us to extend sympathy to these two, and frankly, they're going to do some pretty bad things in our next episode. Right? I'm not arguing that they are, like, heroes or protagonists. But they're but doing least- bad things because out of necessity because of that right because of what's been done to them and because of the extremity of their situation so i wanted to at least acknowledge that their animosity toward thorolf is entirely justified
1: yes it is
0: (laughs) and And the things that are going to happen as a result are not entirely because of some bad actor who enters into the saga from nowhere
1: absolutely yeah and and anyone who's read shakespeare who Mm -hmm. loved himself a bastard right I mean, isn't isn't uh, right. there's so many good speeches in Shakespeare yep. about the, the plight of the bastard? Yes. Um, how do yes. I situate myself in this particular world? Oh, my gosh.
0: Edmund and King Lear is just it's just amazing. I, it, now, exactly. now God stand up for bastards. This is one of the great. That's lines exactly that what I'm thinking of. And that's yep. the
1: situation. But here we have in the 13th century. Snorri Sturluson or someone who wrote this this saga is playing with the Hildreidersons as the the, the bastards um, yeah. who who have a legitimate but very mm-hmm. tragic uh, uh, claim on on property yep. and and reputation, but that they can't well, they can't access. It's, it's and I think like pathetic.
0: Edmund and Lear, uh, the the situation is that they are, they both have a legitimate grievance and then do unconscionable things because of that legitimate grievance. Exactly right that the that it is a tragedy right it's not uh someone like um uh Morth, who we talked about as nemesis in Njal's saga mm-hmm. uh, who you know although he may have reasons to hate Njal and gunnar those reasons are largely largely self-serving right they're largely um uh selfish yeah the hilldericans have been legitimately badly treated now yeah. again they're they're arguing their own corner they're arguing for their own interests but they have been legitimately and objectively treated very poorly. Yeah, and that's a very different situation. They're they're much more
1: human in that way. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So that, that that's all quite fascinating. I love it. I think it's fascinating. I think the connection with Shakespeare is 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 particularly uh, intriguing and, mm. and potentially fruitful for students out there listening. There's a nice paper for you. <laughs> Anybody um, who's trying to uh, do a little comparative literature. How about uh, is it my turn? Can I? Sure. Add Carry on. Yes. Excellent. So, uh, you know, we skipped over this during the ballad of Bard Brynjolfsson uh, mm-hmm. to keep things kind of moving forward as in a, in our own way. <laughs> forward that is a funny term. Yeah. But, but I really wanted to slow down at that moment and look at Harold's interaction with Brunjolf at the start of chapter eight. Great. So, okay. So you're talking about where Harold puts out a call for all the men of Hologoland to come and meet with him. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, Brunyov comes at once and even brings his son Bard uh, with him. And the saga tells us, and this this passage is really important to get a sense of what's building in this particular section of the saga. Harold welcomed them and made Brunjolf a landholder, granting him revenues in addition to those he already had, as well as the right to collect tribute and trade in Finnmark, and to collect taxes in the mountain regions. Afterward, Brunjolf returned to his land, leaving Bard behind with the king's men. Right now that's that is an important passage, and we, we skipped over it, so I'm glad you're going back to it now. This is the introduction of the Lord Vassal relationship in action, and this is Harold right. establishing very clearly his role as Lord and the right. establishment of vassals underneath him.
0: Now I, I assume that most of our audience knows something of the medieval system of vassalage, but Um, Should I give a quick overview to what you're about to say in the context, or do you want to do it? Uh, It's a good idea, but I say let's do it together. Let's team up on this Let's do it. Um, So we'll we'll, we'll try to actually be quick. Uh, So vassalage is the centerpiece
1: of the feudal system that Harald is trying to impose on Norway. Yeah, and this is the same system that William the Conqueror imposed on the Anglo-Saxons, which disrupts the whole political and economic structure of England in the 11th century. Uh Now, that's actually a great example of the kind of transition being
0: forced on the Norwegians. This is all about land and how a man gains access to it. In pre-feudal Anglo-Saxon England and in Norway, men were given land by their king as payment for their loyalty or good service. Uh, That land would then be owned by that individual until the time of his death. Uh, now, that land might then go back to the king, but was often transferred directly to the oldest male heir of the deceased.
1: Yeah, and, and, and that's, here's the important piece. Once the land was given, it belonged to that man. Mm-hmm. He didn't owe the king anything if he wanted to keep that land. Uh, he, he could make of it what he wanted. He could grow his family. He could grow his wealth, his influence through that land. He collects his income, mm-hmm. but also grows as an individual, and he grows his power through the land. His ownership was not tied to military service uh, to the king or any other obligations right. to the Lord uh, right. or kissing that, ass that, as you essentially right. had to do. Right. Mean, that, that classic term of the Normans, right, that the land is held at the pleasure of the king. Exactly. Yeah. Right. None of that. No. And so as time went on in these early days, uh, that land could become, uh, in Anglo-Saxon England anyway, book mm-hmm. land, which was a formal, mm-hmm. is a more permanent declaration of land ownership book land, which could be passed down from one generation to the next without the king's permission, well, that was the key to the future success and the political, economic, and social growth of a family that would allow them to become independent landowners. Right. But then come along men like William the Bastard slash Conqueror
0: and Harold Tanglehair slash Fairhair, uh, and they introduce an entirely new system in which they technically own all the land of the kingdom permanently as king or lord they invest sworn vassals with a fief right? typically control of land and access to various sources of incomes so or these right.
1: privileges Exactly, which is, is what we see being developed in these herald section, this mm-hmm. early herald section in Norway. This is the problem that I think the, the author is introducing. It is that idea of the ownership of the land, the relationship between the lord and his vassals. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what we see in chapter 8, where Brunjolf comes in and he swears oaths to herald. Uh-huh. And as a result, he's not only given... Access to the land he already owns, but he's given more land, but also access to the the task of collecting taxes from other right. people. Right. So this is how income works in uh, in this part of the Middle Ages.
0: Well, and I think we saw in that in that section that uh, Thorol, for example, is able to turn that task, which is really an obligation to go yeah. collect taxes into an economic opportunity for himself. Right? Mm-hmm. That while he's collecting taxes, he's also establishing trade routes. He's also establishing uh, relationships with the local lords that allow him to then
1: uh, turn a profit for himself that is outside of the money that he collects for Harold. Yeah, absolutely. And in medieval Europe in in general, this is one of the problems that, that kings have to deal with when they mm-hmm. have very strong barons, who own land and vast sources of income, um, those, those barons who uh, own that land outright, uh, they're mm-hmm. able to compete against the king. And so what you have is a, is, is a process of centralization of authority. And Harold represents that idea of the centralization of authority, the right. stripping of these great barons, the stripping of great men of their rights, of their independence, uh, of their freedom, of their own economic independence um, right. in, in order to uh, – uh, so, so that they can serve the king a little bit better. But they and, lose so much in the process.
0: Right. And it's interesting to compare that to what happens in England where the feudal system never really fully catches on. Mm-hmm. And you do have that constant problem of uh, earls and lords – that become the Rex Factor term, the overmighty earl, right? The yeah. the uh, the lord who ends up having so much land, so much wealth, so much power, that they can
1: and sometimes do rival the king in scope and in authority. Absolutely. And this is uh this also happens in France. Philip Augustus makes a name yeah. for himself <clears throat> by gaining control over the 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 many, many barons, uh, mm-hmm. the the those independent landholders um, that were given land through the crown, but then right. rise up and, and they're, they're just a little bit too powerful. And so we see <laughs> at this, at this, from the, kind of the 12th to the, the 13th century, we see an increase in the amount of control that kings have over these mm-hmm. more independent uh, right. landholders. Right. And, and, and so I think
0: we're going to see, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I think we're going to see in the rest of this saga that this really plays out, right? The Icelandic impulse and the Icelandic uh, idea that land is inheritable and that that inheritance is to be defended and is to be claimed in the face of almost any obstacle. That's mm-hmm. going to run up against the uh, the
1: idea of the Norwegian kings that land is theirs to grant or withhold as they choose. Absolutely. And on the micro scale, that's going to play out in terms of individual families and their land holdings, specifically the, the children of Kveldof, Um mm-hmm. But on the on the macro scale, we're really talking about Iceland and the, the Icelanders' ability to own their own land and do with it what they want um, right. in the face of of Norwegian aggression in the 13th century. It's all very fascinating. It's being set up very carefully, but all <laughs> I, I don't want to say subtly. It's kind of overt mm-hmm. um, when you when right. you really think about it. Right. In this, but section there are of saga. so
0: many different threads uh, to yeah. keep track of in this early going in the saga. Uh, all right. I think we probably ended the podcast part
1: of the podcast a while yeah. ago. And now we're just talking. We're just talking. Maybe you were just talking. I was analyzing, offering uh, substance ah, to the yes. listener. Well yeah. done. Such a fine line between clever and stupid. Uh, and there we go. There's the Spinal Tap reference, which means uh, <laughs> we should probably call it right now. The the endless uh, barrage of your corny jokes, John, has finally well, exhausted me. I aim and I aim to please. <laughs> And work on your aim uh, but uh, <laughs> uh before we ride off into the sunset uh, uh we promised some uh listener comments and questions i want to share a couple oh that's right we've got a listener mailbag segment now <laughs> only this mailbag is so futuristic we've skipped paper and physical exertion altogether hell we've even we've even skipped email for the most part well do we have a bag at least i mean <laughs> no it's all virtual john Oh, well, emails are so early
0: aughts. I mean, we're, what are we, social media gurus now? All social media. And somehow we're, we're behind on that too. I don't... Oh, uh, is that... Yeah, I've been told
1: Twitter and Facebook are for dinosaurs and old people. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. I mean, that's what my students generally tell me, but I don't yeah. know. Both of those, uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook are used by mm-hmm. all age groups pretty consistently. Uh, but the young folks, they, they do love their Pinterest, their Snapchat and Instagram, but... Uh, I uh I've thought about it, but I've never quite figured out what we could do with this podcast on the more visual mediums. Uh, nobody uh nobody wants to see us in bikinis, John. Yeah, don't be so sure about that. No, I'm uh,
0: very, i hey, sure hey, there's
1: someone that. out there for everyone, Andy.
0: Don't sell yourself short.
1: oh uh, I'm, I'm feeling a little uh, nauseous. Yeah, i saying
0: I'm not saying it's a nice
1: thing. I'm saying that somewhere uh, out there, there's someone. Right. I hope not. It's my wife. <laughs> <laughs> but, but seriously. If anyone has any clue how we could use any of those platforms or some other ones that we don't even know about to uh, maybe more successfully promote the podcast, uh, shoot us an email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, see, no. <laughs> I think what? you missed the entire point here. You can't <laughs> ask
0: for advice about Instagram by soliciting emails. See, you're still being an old
1: man there. It's convenient and I'm used to it. <laughs> now, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> now, on to our mailbag. So our first letter comes to us from uh, Strand. He says Mm -hmm. uh, he'd like to hear us duke it out over the subject of war arrows. So uh, (laughs) get your boxing gloves on, Johnny. Uh Hit me with your best shot on war arrows. What do you know about them? Uh, This is going to be
0: a short and uh, disappointing battle of words because (laughs) uh, my knowledge of war arrows is essentially what I've learned from a handful of sagas and... Related stories, which is yeah. not very much.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm not surprised to hear you say that. Yeah, uh, I got I got the email from Hawken uh, and uh, I also uh, I I don't know a lot about war arrows. Um, he did. They get uh, passed around, is what I understand. <laughs> yes, they get passed around. They indicate something. So Hawken uh, wrote a little bit about war arrows to us. So uh, I'll share with you what he shared. Uh, he said that they are often called bidding sticks uh, and they were used in Norway from the time of Haakon the First to Haakon the Seventh. That's okay. quite a long time. Um, and it was still used uh, in the royal election of Haakon the Seventh in 1905, he tells me. And the last recorded instance of these things, uh, the, the war arrow or the bidding stick, was for a local assembly to discuss taxes in 1917. Um, so... Mm. Little bit of stuff about war arrows there. I also found uh, some info on war arrows in the uh, in Saxo Grammaticus because it does. I, I seem to remember it came up in Saxo Grammaticus. Uh huh. Yeah. And um, there's a footnote about war arrows there um, that basically points you to Norwegian law codes and also, of course, Ale Saga. Uh-huh. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he and- uh, the, the footnote does mention that uh, Saxo refers to the campaigns of Voldemort the first. Um, and in that case, they're using the, the, I guess the word steepest or stick instead of arrow. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch of other references there, but you can, uh, you can look it up for yourself in, uh, Saxo Grammaticus.
0: Now, this is what I find interesting because of course, you know, on the face of it, that would be a completely unintelligible message, right? A war uh-huh. arrow that might indicate a, an imminent threat to the kingdom or might indicate the need to come together and discuss taxation is not a purely useful message, Unless it carries some other information with it, mm-hmm. right? If it's if it's just that, I mean, the messenger himself can deliver the message, but then what's the point of the war arrow? Uh, exactly. I, well, I wonder if these war arrows, particularly when they're actually sticks, are actually carved, mm-hmm. uh, carry an inscription that would give almost like a title or a subject uh, that the messenger could then expound upon. Right. right. But that they that carries authority because it's been carved and it's signed by a so-and-so had me made how mm-hmm. right? had me made uh and so the messenger then carries the authority of a runic inscription um of the king's
1: word right well I mean, that's entirely speculation though i have no proof to back that up yeah yeah so um uh sadly haakon our knowledge on war arrows is extremely limited to things that we can look up on the internet very very quickly How's that for you, for a satisfying answer? Unless I'm right, in which case, I've just solved the riddle of Warhouse. Sure, John, sure. <laughs> so, another listener, Keith, was interested in the Viking diaspora we talked about last mm-hmm. time. He yeah. writes, While not directly related to Ale Saga, the list of the places included in the Viking diaspora from the last episode reminded me. There have been characters in action in the Pharaohs, the Orkneys, Hebrides, and Ireland but only one or two mentions of the Isle of Man so far. Is there any significant action or character in the sagas uh, relating to the Isle of Man? Oh, see, that's a a fun question.
0: Uh, That is. The short answer is yes, uh, the Isle of Man appears in a few of the sagas. Uh, It's generally called Mon, uh, and so far, I'm trying to think about this. I think the most important thing that's happened on the Isle of Man in the sagas we've covered to this point uh, Andy, you might remember this one when I say it, but there was, a, there was an extended scene late in Jarl's saga during the lead-up to the Battle of Clontarf in Ireland. Uh, Brovier and his men were camped on the Isle of Man when they had the prophetic dreams of blood rains and uh-huh. woke to find a man dead on each of their ships. I do remember that, right. yes. Uh, so the Isle of Man, which is not surprising given its location seems to have been kind of a staging point between the Viking presence in England and Scotland and the Orkneys, perhaps, and the Viking presence in Ireland. Uh, So not a reliable historical moment, but uh, certainly a saga story that speaks to a kind of a a cultural memory or cultural knowledge of Viking presence on that island. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, and uh, I mean, obviously, the Vikings were very active on the Isle of Man. It was probably a good mm-hmm. base yep. from which to they could they could uh, attack uh, the the surrounding area. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't. Outside of that one, which uh, I didn't remember until you just said it, um, I can't think of any other examples from the sagas. Doesn't mean but, there I mean, it aren't sh- any, but right. it shows up in the Orkninga saga, um, mm-hmm. which is not surprising given the context. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a, it's it's been a couple, but not a lot. Yeah, interesting question. Uh, but Speaking of the diaspora, another listener drew some interesting comparisons between the Icelanders and, uh, of all people, the Taiwanese. Um, so, oh, sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So she writes, I just listened to the first Ale Saga episode. Something that struck me in the sagas has been the similarity between how Icelanders viewed Harold Fairhair and how nationalist refugees in Taiwan view the Chinese communist government. And she mentions oh. that her grandparents were among those who fled in the late 1940s. Interesting. Um, so, there, she says, there's the same sense of bitterness and loss, the loss of homes, the loss of friends, the loss of family, wealth, and land, and mm-hmm. a deep-seated hatred that remains even today, which is, I think is, is quite, quite interesting. She goes on, and, and yet, there's also that sense of connection to the mainland, the ancestral home. I assume that the Icelanders must have felt the same way, since mm-hmm. Norway and the Norwegians appear in many sagas, and the Icelanders themselves often traveled back and forth. The biggest difference seems to be that while the Norwegians saw Harold's rise as inevitable, the nationalist supporters of Taiwan didn't know what they had lost even after they had retreated to Taiwan. Mm-hmm. For decades, they believed and taught in the schools that they would retake the mainland. And I haven't decided yet which attitude is more tragic. Which it's such a it's an interesting post.
0: It's an interesting um, com- uh, connection. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, I, I should say... Uh, We said that the Norwegians saw Harald's rise as inevitable, but some of the Icelanders didn't, Uh, or at least the way it's portrayed in the sagas is that they didn't. Uh, Again, casting back to Greta's saga, uh, remember Onan Treefoot and his friend Thrand, uh, they went to uh, the Orkneys and then to Iceland and tried to drum up support for an invading force to return to Norway.
2: Yeah.
0: that they still believed that Norway could be won, that there would be enough of a kind of groundswell of support in their favor if they returned with a sufficient fighting force that they'd be able to throw Harold right out.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was only after they uh, talked to a few people, and especially after their conversation with Ophir Gretter, that they gave up that idea that there wasn't... And Gehrman Darkskin is another one they spoke to, who essentially said, like, we're, we're making new lives for ourselves out here. We're not, we're not going back. Right. Um, that they finally had to accept it and, and give up their hope of returning to Norway, but yeah, not all the Icelanders did think that the battle
1: was lost even after they they'd fled. Right? They still believed they could return. It's so interesting that that those narratives are preserved throughout centuries, right? Mm-hmm. But but that speaks to um, how deep the connection between Iceland and yep. Norway really was. Yeah, yeah. But uh, as uh, as a listener suggests, it's 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 tragic. Both on the uh, the Icelandic yeah. side and the, the Taiwanese side, um, it's it's really
0: interesting connection to make.
1: Yeah, well, and what I what I uh, said back on on Facebook uh, to the listener was it's, it's it's so interesting how these little connections kind of just happen, and it breathes real life into into a narrative that is you know so yeah. so incredibly old, um, but it's still relevant. It it still has uh, something to say to people have that have experienced something similar.
2: I, I
0: like the uh, I like the idea that the podcast is now you explaining a comment that you wrote on Facebook, <laughs> uh, which is readily available to anybody who wants to go to the Facebook. Page. Well, no, this was uh, this was on the <laughs>
1: inbox, so it's a uh, oh, private, private message, up. not carry on, carry public. on. Like that. But uh, <laughs> all right, you uh, you want to do one more? Uh, we could sure, close yeah. this out with a, a question rather than a comment. Uh, okay, what do you got? So this one is about an older saga when we did a little while ago. How's uh, how's your memory tonight? <laughs> uh, well it depends on which saga we're talking about uh, go ahead give it a shot all right so uh, I think it's uh, Eowyn writes I recently mm-hmm. listened to your podcast on the saga of Ref the Sly you remember that one? Oh yeah yeah of course uh, so Eowyn says I thought back to gisli saga when Ref hid hid Gisli beneath his wife and I wondered when did Ref go back oh, yes. to Iceland because he fled Iceland for Greenland <laughs> and got married in Greenland and he then fled mm-hmm. to Norway, then Denmark, and he lived in Denmark until he died. So I ask again, when did Ref go to Iceland? I hope you can clear this <laughs> up. So, uh, John, can you clear this up for Eowyn? Uh When did Ref the Sly go back to Iceland?
0: Right. Uh, so I think we briefly addressed this in the Ref the Sly episode, but we, we may have just blown past it very quickly. Uh, that Ref the Sly is a uh, uh, one manifestation of a figure who appears sort of across medieval literature right this uh trickster figure whose name is always connected in some way to foxes yeah right uh ref or Renaud or that kind of thing uh, that he is the fox the trickster right uh that figure appears in more than one saga he's always the same how do you explain it the same character mm-hmm. but he's not necessarily the same Person.
1: Right. He doesn't exist uh, on the same timeline.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so it's essentially that there's a character who is the trickster, right? Ref the sly or Reynald the Fox or however he appears. I mean Robin Hood is a kind of trickster figure as well. Absolutely. Um, but uh that figure, though he appears as ref in more than one saga, and although he's always that same trickster ref is not necessarily a one contiguous figure from one saga to the next. Exactly. And so the Ref the Sly who appears in Gisli's saga is not the, is not necessarily possessed of the same personal history as the Ref the Sly who
1: has the saga, Ref the Sly. I think that's a great answer. And that's probably a good place to stop for now. Uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks with a third installment of A.L. Saga. But in the meantime, let us know what you think. Do you agree with John that the... Hilderidarsons are getting a raw deal. Is the myth mm-hmm. and legend of Harold Fairhair something you want to hear more about? Do
0: you want to hear more tales of Thorolf's adventures
1: among the Finno-Ugric peoples of northern Scandinavia? Uh, <laughs> oh, I mean, they can want more tales of Thorolf in Lapland, but I'm not sure how to satisfy <laughs> that craving. Well, then perhaps our listeners have another question they guess, us to tackle. Yeah, if you want to be featured on our... Uh, prestigious Listener Mailbag segment in the next episode. You can drop us a line at our Facebook page where we are Saga Thing Podcast or on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod or you can reach us at our dusty old email address (laughs) SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com Or you can build a massive hole, fill it with all your neighbors, invite us to a three-day
0: party and then try to keep us from pouting by telling us your message.
1: It's a gift. That's yep. right. <laughs> I, I think I'd uh, I'd probably be in a pretty good mood at a party like that. Either way, so as always, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're you really are uh, you yeah. really are a secret frat boy this episode, aren't you? <laughs> as always, thank you for the support and for playing along with this podcast. Now, if you enjoy
0: what we do and you're moved to do so, please rate us on your podcast catching platform of choice. Uh, You have no idea how those positive reviews keep us fired up for the show, as well as hopefully convincing
1: more people to give us a try. Absolutely. We will be back soon with another installment of Ale Saga. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye for now.
0: Harak and Harek Hilder I'm try it's a hard enough saying Harak and Harak Hildiridarsen <laughs> without you purposely mispronouncing it in my ear while I'm doing it.
1: So it's not long before Harak Hildiri. <laughs> See, before- it's not easy to say, is it? Like, I know. <laughs> it's not long before Harak Hilderid. God damn it. <laughs> right now there
0: is one more point uh, Olvir deduced that it was the uh, like, <laughs> oh, <my goodness. laughs>
1: through the the Hilder mm-hmm. God damn it <laughs> I'm telling you that's the nugget for this episode <laughs> it's very funny it'd be too long um, but it, he's playing with the Hildredarsons uh, <laughs> I don't even know how to, how to recover hey, hey, this <laughs> what's that now you did the mispronunciation that you always talk about. <laughs> I can't win, man. It's for an American that is such a hard thing to say. <laughs> you know, yeah. He so he's playing with uh, the Hilde...
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> he shares his father's dislike of the yeah <laughs>
2: Now, I just did, now who's wasting I time? I just did that for fun. <laughs>